0: to our scripture text this morning. It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and I will read uh, verses 12 through 26. Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. Page 1011 in your pew Bibles. Mark 14:12. Hear the reading of God's most holy word. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, that is to Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, Say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, In the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And here with verse 26. Ends our morning reading. Of God's holy word. I felt a few days ago. As if I would maybe bitten off more than I could chew. Because uh, the session. Deciding how to uh, divvy up. The scripture texts for preachers um, was going to divide this passage into three sections, and I made the foolhardy suggestion that why don't we just cover it all at once? Because on October fourth we'll be observing the Lord's Supper. So, what what could be a more appropriate text to uh, to deal with? Uh, but as I began to uh, to do the study. I was uh, quite overwhelmed by the, the depth and the, uh, how the thoughts uh, contained here in the Word of God. <laughs> Nevertheless, we will do our best, and it may not be uh, fully satisfying to all of you, uh, and I hope you will continue to meditate on this through the day and, and even through the week. Uh, there is much here. Uh, for our soul's nourishment and satisfaction. Well, I want to begin with a question, and the question is, uh, what is on your to-do list? How many of you have a to-do list, at least a mental list? Things you have to do during the day or the week to come. I, I think most of us probably have several things that we're planning to do in the coming week. And uh, for me, I need to lay some tile in our utility room, and uh, there are uh, unfortunately some items of paperwork I need to take care of for the session here before uh, uh, the week is out. And uh, Sue and I are planning a trip to visit our son Chris down in uh, North Carolina. Just a few of the things that I have on my mind, and hopefully it will not be a distraction from my worship with you today. You know, even Jesus had his to-do list. Uh, The opening words of our text today show us what he was planning for the day ahead. He was planning to celebrate the Passover with his band of disciples. But that's not all he had to do on this day. He had lots of things on his to-do list. Within 24 hours, Jesus would lay down his life and his body would rest in a tomb. This one day would contain the climactic events of Jesus' arrest, mock trial, and condemnation, his scourging, his utter humiliation. And his agonizing death upon a Roman cross. You see Jesus was preparing to die this day. But first. Jesus wanted to do something else. He wanted to eat this Passover. With his disciples. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, 15, Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you that I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What will be on your day's list of things to do, if you knew that at the end of the day, you were going to die? What would be on your to-do list? Of course, we know that in the end, we must die too. But what we don't know is when that day will come. And most of us are such great procrastinators that... uh, We tend to put off some of the most important things that we really need to do today. We put it off because we don't know how much time we have to get them done. We don't know when our last day will come. We put things off, but Jesus did not do that. He could not do that. He knew what he was facing. He knew what was coming, and he did the things on his list. Jesus, the Bible tells us, had come into the world for one great purpose. To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came, you see, to give his life, to die And now, that time was very, very close. But why was this Passover on Jesus' final to-do list? Why the Passover? What was so important about celebrating this Passover? I want to think about this as we look more carefully at our text this morning. The first part of the text, verses 12 through 16, deals with the way Jesus prepared for the Passover, his preparations. And the second part shows how this one final Passover was different from previous Passovers. Verses 17 through 26 explain what Jesus added to the Passover and including, of course, his institution of the Lord's Supper, to show that God's greatest work of deliverance was about to be accomplished through him. So let's look at these two sections, verses 12 through 16. First, Christ's preparations for the Passover. You know, the Passover was arguably the most important of the three annual religious feasts that drew many, many thousands of Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem. By the best estimates that I've seen, uh, Jerusalem's ordinary population of around 55,000 at the time of Jesus grew, it just swelled to perhaps as many as 180,000 during the Passover. So we're thinking of a city suddenly growing by roughly three times the size. 125,000 pilgrims converged on this city for the Passover. And the city was packed with those Passover pilgrims. Jesus had been coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover every year. Since he was 12 years old, he came every year, first with his family, then with his disciples. And this year was, in a sense, no exception, no different from the others. He came up to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. But it wasn't a mere religious tradition for Jesus nor was it a desire to sort of temporarily put away the harsh realities of life by celebrating an old-fashioned holiday, kind of the way a lot of Americans look at Christmas. You know, oh, I just really hope I can get together for Christmas one more time, you know, and that's such a, a, a happy time to be with family and friends. It's a bit romantic a view of a religious old-fashioned, maybe not even religious, but an old-fashioned holiday, a family time. But that is not the way Jesus looked at the Passover. That's not his uh, reason for putting this at the top of his to-do list on this last day. Jesus had brought his disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate his Passover in preparation for his own death. As a means of preparing for his own death. Now, uh, rather than focusing on the details of verses 12 through 16, and there's some very fascinating details for you to read and think about. I want to think about why Jesus may have given his disciples such unusual instructions in order to prepare for the Passover. They came and said, Lord, uh, teacher, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go, rather? Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? That was the question, and they probably expected a different kind of answer than Jesus gave. Of course, they knew what had to be done in order to prepare. They, too, had celebrated Passover every year, since they were boys. They needed a proper room. Had to be large enough, had to be furnished to serve the Passover to a group of, well, at least 13, right? Jesus and his 12 disciples and possibly many more. It's possible that there were others who had come down from Galilee with Jesus and his disciples who traveled with them to Jerusalem and, Very possibly they were with them in that large upper room. And they needed all of the utensils and the ingredients for the Passover meal. They would need the plates and and, uh, the bowl. What what do we have down here? We need special utensils, you see. These are the accoutrements of the the Lord's Supper. And, uh, of course, the ingredients themselves, the wine. The unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and of course, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was the most important thing of all. Your lamb, God had said to Moses, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and it could be either a sheep or it could be a goat. And the people of Israel must sacrifice the lamb at the same time that other families did. Between the evenings is the expression that God spoke to Moses. You shall sacrifice the Passover lambs between the evenings. That is probably between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m. in the afternoon the late afternoon and the early evening, between the evenings in this period. Then they must take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they would eat the Passover. You could read the instructions in Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. Now Jesus' disciples... Remembered the careful instructions that God had given to Moses for observing the Passover. The Passover preparations were conscientiously obeyed when that first Passover had been celebrated in Egypt by their ancestors. And it was those instructions for preparing the Passover and observing the Passover were followed very carefully for a good reason. The Lord God had promised to deliver them safely out of their slavery in Egypt, but they must follow God's instructions with great care. God would deliver them, but they had to obey and do as he said. For I, God had said, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. And I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood. That is the blood of the Passover lamb. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. See, those were serious, serious words. Their lives depended on following God's instructions carefully. In particular, His instructions about the blood of the Passover lamb. Because God said, when I see that blood, when I see that you have sacrifice the lamb and put its blood on your your, uh, doorpost and doorway of the house where you are. When I see that blood, I will pass over you. And you will escape the punishment, the judgment that will fall on Egypt and its heathen gods. Now Jesus' disciples knew that the Passover they celebrated was, was God's way of reminding them of how He had delivered Israel from bondage and misery in Egypt. It was to be for them an everlasting memorial of God's powerful and gracious deliverance. And they didn't want to forget. So they prepared for the Passover with great care. But there were two problems with preparing for this Passover. First, they needed a place. They needed a place where they could meet together to eat the Passover. And what was that, what was the condition of the city at that time? The city was packed with pilgrims. Sue and, and I and our family once traveled across southern South Dakota on our way to Yellowstone Park for a family vacation, and we realized too late that it was the weekend of a certain gathering of motorcycle enthusiasts in Sturgis, a little town in South Dakota. And from Moorhead, Minnesota, on the east, Minnesota is east of South Dakota, all the way to the Black Hills, the western end of the state, and Wyoming, I don't think there was a motel room in that whole stretch, some 400 plus miles. And I looked. And we were tired. And our children were mostly sleeping and others cranky and just needing a place to stop. Finally, we stopped at a roadside rest that was also packed with motorcyclists spread out on sleeping in sleeping bags on the picnic tables and on the ground. And there we we just... Spent the night, the last last few hours of the night, sleeping in the van and waiting until daylight so we could continue our journey. It's hard when there are so many people that all the motels are full and there's no place to stay. You might recall the night of Jesus' birth. There was a similar problem in Bethlehem. So what will they do? Where could the disciples find a suitable room furnished appropriately to accommodate a Passover meal? Everybody was in town for the same reason. And when they brought this concern to Jesus, the disciples received some startling directions. But what was the point? What was the point of directing the disciples to the city, Jerusalem? where a man would meet them carrying a water jar, who in turn would lead them to the room prepared for them. Some have suggested that Jesus wanted the location to be kept secret. Perhaps from Judas, or from the scribes and priests, who were seeking to seize him by stealth and kill him, as verse 1 of this chapter tells us. But I think there's a simpler explanation—not just not that Jesus wanted to keep it a special secret, but I think the reason may have been that he simply wanted to demonstrate that God is in control. God is in control. That's why he gave them these elaborate instructions. Um, we can truly commit to the Lord all of our concerns. All of these things have been taken care of. Whether Jesus himself took took care of it earlier in the week, or whether Jesus simply knew by divine knowledge that these things were all in place, doesn't really make any difference. The main point Is that the room, the location where they could possibly meet to celebrate the Passover in this crowded city, had all been taken care of? God was in charge of this. They didn't need to worry about making their room reservation too late. You see, we can truly commit to the Lord all of our concerns. And Jesus knew that when these disciples were left on their own, they would need to commit all of their concerns to God, their Heavenly Father. Jesus Himself would for a time not be with them to lead. So the disciples... Uh, didn't need to worry about their room. They didn't need to be concerned about either the place or the time of the Passover. Their teacher desires to eat this Passover with them. So they will have a room. In fact, Jesus has already seen to its preparation. I suspect it may be a, a universal truth that We always, men always tend to push the importance of their own work and their own efforts and their own role into the foreground. We tend to think that a great deal depends on us. It's not always that way. The disciples focused on what they could do for Jesus, what they must do to prepare So that Jesus could eat the Passover with his disciples. But Jesus was already ahead of them. Way ahead of them. He'd already made all the necessary arrangements. And the disciples merely needed to discover it. They simply needed to learn uh, to follow his directions. To trust Him. And strange as those directions may have seemed. When they followed them. Guess what? They found things. Exactly as Jesus had described. All they needed to do was follow His directions. And they would learn how completely. He has taken care of all of the details. So the place is taken care of, but one thing still seems to be missing from the arrangements. They had a room. It was carpeted and furnished with the low tables at which the guests would recline to share in the Passover. All of that was ready, and there the disciples brought the other essentials for the Passover meal, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and the mixed wine. But in none of the gospel accounts of Jesus' last Passover, in none of the gospel accounts, is there any mention of what? The Passover lamb. There's not a hint in any of the gospel accounts of a Passover lamb. Now, perhaps they ate roast lamb, and perhaps they did not. But the lack of any mention of the Lamb seems to need some explanation. And the explanation may be provided by a brief note in John's Gospel. John's Gospel tells us in uh, chapter 19, verse 14, John 19, 14, tells us that the time when Jesus was delivered up to be crucified was the day of preparation for the passover about the 6th hour which would have been about noon in other words when Jesus and his disciples were preparing for their passover the rest of Jerusalem had not yet begun to do so for them That would happen on the following day. In fact, the time when Jesus breathed his last on the cross was the same time, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon on Friday, about the same time that the Jews in Jerusalem were slaughtering their own Passover lambs under the supervision of the priests. In the temple. You see the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed in the temple. Under the priest's watchful eyes. Mark has already told us that it was the day when the Passover lamb was sacrificed. When the disciples first asked Jesus about making preparations for their own Passover. So it seemed to some that one of these gospel authors, Mark or John, one of them has gotten things mixed up and made a mistake. Both statements could not be true. Either the day when the, when the disciples of Jesus got ready for the Passover, or the following day, when the rest of Jerusalem was sacri- sacrificing its Uh, lambs in the temple, one of these has to be the day of preparation for the Passover. But how could both be the day of preparation for the Passover? I think there is a better explanation than to say that there is an error. The Jewish folks always counted their days Beginning with the evening. And they followed the pattern shown in Genesis 1. Verse 5. And when God created. And there was evening. And there was morning. One day. And there was evening. And there was morning. A second day. You see the day started in the evening. And went through the next day. At sundown. So. Uh, I think this may point us uh, to a solution to this this question. In this case, Mark in verse twelve here in our passage, he's referring to a time just after sundown on the day we count as Thursday, but they would have considered it Friday, the beginning of Friday. And that is the day when the Passover Passover lambs were going to be sacrificed. And it was the day when Jesus would be nailed to a cross. Even though their preparations may have started late. uh, After sundown. On the beginning of a new day. The disciples discovered as they followed Jesus' instructions that there was enough time. They didn't even start preparing until, say, after 6 p.m., but there was enough time because the room was already furnished and ready for them. All they needed to do was set out the meal, maybe a simplified version Bread, unleavened bread and wine and the bitter herbs. So there was time because Jesus had seen to the preparations. But what about the lamb? What about the lamb for the Passover? The the Lord had taken care of this too. A Passover lamb, an official Passover lamb had to be sacrificed in the temple. And that would happen on the next day, sometime after morning, probably around mid-afternoon on Friday. But the Lord had taken care of the Passover lamb. He provided a special time and a place for their Passover. And he also provided the lamb. Maybe the disciples recalled the words of Abraham recorded in Genesis 22. When the Lord God gave a sheep to be sacrificed in place of Abraham's beloved son Isaac. And Abraham had named this very spot where the temple stood on Mount Zion. He named that place Yahweh Yireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord will. Will provide, And now, once again, the Lord does provide, and Jesus himself takes the place of the Passover lamb. He himself becomes the focal point of the Passover meal. As the Apostle Paul later states plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul said, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Christ himself is our Passover lamb whose blood will save us. Now what was different about this last Passover? We we need to press on, look at verses 17 through 26 uh, quickly, but the Passover for Jesus was not just, as I said earlier, was not just a religious holiday tradition. It was a a memorial of God's ancient deliverance of Israel from a cruel servitude in Egypt. But it was more than a memorial of the past. And like that first Passover that Moses celebrated on one dark night in Egypt, long, long ago, so this Passover also pointed ahead it pointed ahead to what God was going to do in the coming day. The first Passover pointed ahead to the coming of God's angel of death. When God would execute judgment on his enemies and open the door for Israel's journey to the promised land. And similarly, Jesus' last Passover reveals both God's righteous punishment of the wicked And his deliverance of those who will trust him and obey his words. First, Jesus speaks of the coming judgment of God upon the one who betrays God's Messiah. The judgment of God is coming on the one who has betrayed or will betray the Messiah. One of you, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. For the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 21. You see, Jesus is speaking of himself when he uses the title son of man. And this is the phrase that identifies God's anointed king, the Messiah, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. "One like the Son of Man refers to the Christ in Jesus himself." Now there are several things to note about verses 17 through 21. The first thing is that when we, we, he's talking about God's judgment, on the one who betrays him. The first thing is that uh, even in the midst of the most intimate of relationships, sin can find a foothold. It's shocking enough that any man would betray a man as good as Jesus had shown himself to be, but that one of their own fellowship, one who is a close and intimate friend, should betray the Messiah to his death, that was an idea too terrible to imagine. And yet Jesus emphasizes this close bond, this covenant bond that the betrayer would violate. It is one who is eating with me. It is one of the twelve. It is one who dips with me in the bowl. This one will betray the Son of Man. And Jesus' disciples need to be aware of this. They must not be naive about the power of evil to invade even the most intimate of relationships and to raise barriers and to wreak havoc. Nor should they underestimate the ability of hypocrisy To cloak the enemy in what seems to be a garment of light. They think he's a friend. They think he is close. And one of them. But he is following a different master. Serving a different Lord. He is an enemy. And his words and actions don't seem to show it. But that is the true state of his heart. So there's a warning. Don't be naive about the ability of evil and sin to enter in to the most intimate of relationships. But the other side of this warning about disloyalty is the truth that many will prove themselves faithful, even if not perfect. But they will be loyal and faithful friends and allies. It's only one of the twelve after all. That means that eleven will still be standing together. You will know them by their fruits, the scriptures say, Jesus said. The test of trustworthiness is ultimately less concerned with loyalty to a friend or Or even to a spouse or a brother or a sister. The true test of trustworthiness ultimately is one's loyalty to Christ. And obedience to his word. If you find one who is loyal to Christ. You can be sure of their loyalty and their faithfulness to you as well. Only Christ himself, though, is absolutely trustworthy and dependable in every circumstance of life. Only Christ is absolutely reliable. But one who clings to his word as the only infallible rule for faith and life, that one will prove himself dependable and worthy of our trust, too. Well, that's one thing to observe here. The second thing to note is that when one realizes the power of sin and the pervasiveness of temptation and evil, the true believer is moved to examine his own heart. To examine his own heart. It, it shouldn't be any surprise that all of Jesus' disciples rather than looking suspiciously at one another or even pointing the finger of blame at one another, they looked first at their own hearts. And each one, in turn, asked Jesus, Lord, it's not me. Is it? Surely it's not I. There is humility in that question from 11 of the disciples. There is humility. Even if there is hypocrisy in one. But the true believer. Recognizing the pervasiveness of sin and temptation. Will not cast the blame and look for Someone else, but first look at his own heart. The third thing to notice here is that Judas must bear responsibility for his hypocritical hardness of heart. Despite modern efforts to rehabilitate his memory, there is no room to doubt the personal moral guilt of Judas. He's not just a pawn, not just a puppet, destined for this this unsavory role. God did not make him sin contrary to his own will or nature. In fact, Jesus' warning that the one who betrayed him would not be forgiven and would face God's terrible judgment, this warning should be seen as a merciful plea by Jesus to his betrayer. It's a plea. It's a final call for Judas to confess the sin of his heart. It's an opportunity for Judas to confess his sin and to repent while he may. But he would not. He would not. For this reason, the judgment of God was closing in on Judas. And with a few hours, God's judgment would descend upon Judas. And his life, too, would come to an end. The last Passover is much more a message of hope and salvation, however, than it is of wrath and condemnation. And this is what Jesus explains to his disciples in verses 22 to 26. The first Passover gave the Israelites a sign. The blood of the lamb sprinkled upon their doorways that would ward off the angel of death. It was a sign to protect them from destruction. And now Jesus presents himself as the Passover lamb which God has provided. But he's not only a sign He is everything that that ancient sign promised and pointed to. He is a substitute sin bearer who will take away the guilt of our sins by bearing the penalty himself in his own flesh. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The old Passover could do nothing but remind Israel of God's judgment And his salvation. But by the blood of Jesus. The lamb God provided. The sins of his people are actually removed. They're lifted. And borne away. And that is the difference between the first Passover and this last Passover. For this reason Peter says that Christians should know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see, it did it. The death of Christ. The blood of Christ applied for us took away the wrath of God and gave us peace and hope and freedom and what's called salvation. For us, the Lord's last Passover has become the first Lord's Supper. It's celebrated by the Christian church all over the world according to the instructions of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And this is the same Lord's Supper that we will observe here today. Like the original Passover, the Lord's Supper points us to the cross of Jesus. It is a memorial. It's a reminder of God's great sovereign act of deliverance but it's particularly the cross of Jesus where our redemption was taken care of. Once for all, and our bill was stamped, paid in full. As the Passover pointed to God's mercy to Israel and his judgment on Egypt and her gods, so the Lord's Supper shows us Christ's redeeming grace Poured out for those who put their trust in him. As well as his judgment. On those who reject him. The Lord's Supper is not a saving ordinance. No one is saved by. Eating the bread or drinking the cup. But you must show your faith in the Redeemer. By doing what Jesus tells you. To do. And that's why we. We gather and we eat this bread and we drink of the cup but it's faith in Jesus Christ the Redeemer that saves us it's his shed blood and his broken body that bears away our sins there's one more little detail that distinguishes the last Passover and our Lord's Supper from every from every other Passover Jesus states clearly that he is our spiritual food. He is the bread of life. And his blood is our spiritual drink. It's the blood of the covenant that unites us with God. The blood of the first Passover lamb in the days of Moses was sprinkled on the lintel and doorpost as an outward sign to protect those within. But Jesus' body and blood, it's not just an outward sign, it has to be internalized. Internalized. Each of us must take and eat. Take the cup and drink it. It requires a personal act of obedience and trust in Christ. You see, we need the inward nourishment and strengthening of our faith more than we need an outward sign. When we share in the Lord's Supper in a proper manner, it is Christ's Holy Spirit who enlivens our spirit and strengthens our faith by these elements that we receive. The first Passover provided what? Physical nourishment. An energy for the people of Israel who ate the flesh of the lamb and the unleavened bread. And then they got up and they marched out across the desert and through the wilderness in the weeks and the months and the years ahead. They needed that physical nourishment for the long road ahead of them. But the Passover Jesus celebrated with his disciples... Like the Lord's Supper that we are observing today, it provided very little physical nourishment. Kids always like to watch the the Lord's Supper and they want to taste. wonder what that tastes like, that bread, that special bread. wonder what that tastes like, that little, in that tiny, cute little cup. And they want to take part. They want to know, what is it? But it's not, and and they taste it, and what do they say? I don't like that. It's not not very tasty. It's not very good. But it's not the physical nourishment or the taste itself. It's the faith-strengthening nourishment that Christ has provided and His Spirit enlivens within us. It strengthens and nourishes the soul of everyone who partakes of this supper by faith. And as Christ's disciples today, we still need to draw our strength from Him to equip us for the difficult road ahead, for the spiritual race set before us. It's a race we must all run and one that will bring us at the end safely to God's house where we will dwell with him forever. And that is all I have to say on our passage today. May God bless us as we draw near to take part in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Let's uh, turn and on...